I want to be someone who contributes to enhance uh, people's lives. I think that the better way is not to talk about diversity and inclusiveness, but diversities and inclusiveness, because everyone is diverse their own way. When you do research, you do better research if you feel for the topic. The way business changes, changes society. I am the voice of the vulnerable. Finding ways to have impact and finding a purpose to guide one's life and one's career are not easy tasks, even when there is no shortage of imperatives to act in our society. On Tomorrow is Our Business podcast this month, our guest invites us to answer those questions in a very simple but effective way. Align who you are with what you do. His coming out was a pivotal moment in his academic career. From this point in his life, he decided to advocate for human rights and for diversities, as he prefers to call this. Matteo Winkler is Professor of Law and Chair of the Diversity Committee at HEC Paris. As a man, a lawyer, a researcher and a teacher, he tells us how he's committed to further push the agenda on inclusiveness. In this conversation, as well as in his life, he lays his feelings out on the table. This is how he intends to make change happen. You are listening to Tomorrow is Our Business, stories of people who choose to have an impact on others' lives. So I am, first of all, a man, so I identify as a man. And uh, I am also a professor of law, so I'm a lawyer. I am a scholar, which means a, a person who does research as a main job and also a teacher. And as you can see, I declined my characteristics as starting from personal to professional, even if the professional part seems greater than the personal part, that's only because I love my job. And I think that having an impact as a professor, as a teacher, as a researcher, also enriches me personally. So that's why I identify as a man first and then I decline three uh, parts of my job. I have been a lawyer for 12 years when I was in Italy and then I switched to academia. And when I was a lawyer, what inspired me was to have an impact on people, so to help people taking uh, the right decisions, mainly decisions that were compliant with the law. And as a researcher, I want to help uh, my readers, and in particular when I use my research in the classroom to help my students to understand the law and also, as we will be discussing later, maybe I am also an expert of diversity, equality and inclusiveness, which is DEI. So as an expert of DEI, I also want the students to develop a sense of belonging to a community. And I think that's the best part of my uh, work at HEC. What inspires me, in fact, is the idea of building up a community, a network of people who get along together 
and are mutually inspired by you know each other and uh, I, I'm trying to contribute to that. It's really what I call an academic advocacy, which means to me to, to be an advocate of something, you know, of inclusiveness, of belonging, of well-being, uh, using uh, research and using academic work. Before embracing the academic career, Matteo served as lawyer at the Bar of Milan. I remember my job as a lawyer with uh, much fond. I love to be a lawyer. Uh, that's what uh, my grandmother always told me. Uh, you're going to be a lawyer. And I was mocking of her and saying, no, oh my God. I, want, I wanted to be, actually wanted to study Greek and Latin literature at the beginning, ancient literature at the beginning, which uh, would probably have made me jobless uh, after the degree. But so I chose the law because I thought that law gives persons power. When you masterize the language of the law, you can use it as a, a power uh, to convince people, to uh, lead uh, people's behaviors. And therefore, I thought that having power was an amazing thing, and especially when you don't use the power of violence, but use the power of words. Perhaps his grandmother's advice were key in determining Matteo's future. But here is really why he chose to engage in LGBT rights and to leverage the law in order to make the world a more inclusive place. There are two phases which are, correspond to the two phases of my life. Before Yale and after Yale. Before Yale, I was a kind of kid still, even if I was 25, 26. Uh, that was in 2006. And when I went to Yale, I realized that, uh, you know, I liked men more than women. And so uh, coming out, I remember that it was in a, the courtyard of the Yale Law School. And it was an amazing experience because I did it with a friend of mine who was a Republican, hyper-conservative guy. I don't know why I decided to come out with such a person. And it went super well. He was like super comprehensive uh, and and he understood perfectly the situation and I must thank uh, that moment because after that I decided to change completely my philosophy of life and instead of using uh, the law as uh, you know power in general I wanted to use the law as a, as a tool for change so I started buying books about uh, gay rights, about LGBT rights. And uh, from there, uh, I moved to create arguments to convince people that having LGBT inclusiveness was a good thing. And to do that, of course, I um, had a lot of readings to do, a lot of study. And then when I went back to Italy, I was um, still a lawyer and uh, I started writing on LGBT rights and it was extremely successful because at the time, it was 2008, no one wrote about that except a few politicians from the, from the left wing. And then um, I thought like, wow, if I uh, can persuade the judges and other lawyers to act on the same line as, you know, to ensure... Uh, more inclusiveness in LGBT rights, 
that would be uh, a mission accomplished for me. And so I wrote in a lot of journals. I remember I worked like hell. Uh, I published kind of one article per month, which is like crazy in, in uh, compared to to stand to academic standards. And uh, all journals were looking for me. I'm, we are, I'm talking about law journals and law reviews. They were looking for me and they contacted me. Oh, we want, you have this decision of the tribunal of Rome about a gay couple who wanted to marry. And can you comment on that? And so I say, yeah, they should, you know, even if the judges have been very conservative in that respect. I know in the laws in France, there has been a huge debate with mayors marrying gay couples since the, the, the early 2000s. At the point, I thought that I was contributing. A lot of words, a lot of ink is uh, spared uh, in literature, in academic literature about things, but does not mean necessarily that there is contribution. I think contribution is super important. It's like, you know, um, the, the ancient kings of uh, Mesopotamia or Egypt that leaves written statements on the pyramids, on ancient pieces, but, but then there was no contribution like that is just words spared in the sand. And uh, I don't want to be that. I want to be someone who contributes to, you know, to life of people, to, to, to improve, to enhance uh, people's lives. And, and the fact that I've become an academic full-time, a full-time scholar, makes me really think about how I can impact the students. Because like, you know, Having, you know, research is kind of abstract. When you write, you write for uh, an abstract reader that does not exist in reality, it's just in your head. But when you, when you enter the classroom, you see people in flesh. And then you realize that what you say can be of impact for them and can really determine their lives in like more or less important ways. Having impact on people does not mean only defending a particular community. For Matteo, it is also about defending human rights. I decided to, and this was the first change that came by, to change the narrative of my research from Italy to Europe in general and globally, to have a global view, and I adopted a human rights approach to my research, always starting with human rights, which is something that, of course, most a, lo a lot of nations have in common. And then uh, when I found my place at HEC, there was a second change. It was in 2014. There was a second change. It was because the school was very supportive in my ideas on how to, you know, to study uh, the rights, LGBT rights. And at, at the time, we discussed with the deans and the idea came out to move from LGBT to more to a broader diversity and inclusiveness, diversity, equity and inclusiveness or equality and inclusive, whatever you want to call it. And so this is not just a, a, a business language, but it's a language can be used in society. So my idea is uh, to develop uh, a course first and then to move with my research to uh, land over unexplored islands um, 
Well, they're not really unexplored, right? But they like to use current research to push on, a, you know, further push further on inclusiveness. Matteo published a research article on the South African athlete Kester Semenya, who was barred from the Tokyo Olympics for having a too high level of testosterone. In this article entitled "The Uncertain Promise of Human Rights in Sports." Understanding the Castasemenya case, Matteo deconstructs the narratives surrounding the case to reflect its legal, sociological, and ethical implications. This research is the very example of how he contributes in his own way. So I was inspired really by Semenya's experience and Semenya's litigation by my personal feeling that I don't think. The law should make people vulnerable. I think law should make people stronger. And when you decide that the person cannot run in a sport she's very good at, just because nature, whatever nature means, gave this person an above-average level of testosterone, this is unfair completely. We shouldn't punish people for characteristics that have nothing to do with their willingness. They have nothing to do with their stubbornness. They have nothing to do with their own being. Um, and so I think that it's a problem, you know, of controlling bodies in some ways. That's why I was inspired by this uh, this case. And also, I felt for. Caster Semenya really personally because I thought she was fighting a right battle, a right judicial battle for her right to exist in the world and to run in the female category without her testosterone being used against her. I think it's outrageous that her body, which is beautiful, inspiring, is considered not to be... Because that is the real question, right? When you see Caster Semenya, you say, oh, it's not a woman, it's a man, because she's muscled, uh, she has some hair, uh, she's tall, uh, she's big. Women should be weak, without any hair in their body, and they should not have muscles, um, and so on. So I think that really I like the case and I wanted to write on the case because I think it was a battle for justice, social justice, a minority's justice, because I thought that punishing someone for their body's characters is wrong and unjust. And that was inspired me. And I was also inspired by her stubbornness in fighting against the uh, World Athletic, which is a much more powerful. You no, know, she's a, she comes from an absolutely poor family in an absolutely poor village called Limpopo in South Africa, where if you look at Google Maps, it's just a, a bunch of streets crossing each other. And I can I can really figure her as a kid. Uh, playing soccer with her friends in the sand, in this very sandy place. And I was thinking, like, so you arrive at a very successful position as an Olympic champion, and and someone tells you that you're not good enough because your body does not fit the image of that we have of women 
I find this outrageous. So I was really enraged when I wrote this paper, and I was really pursuing a goal of making people understand that this is unfair. But because this, the case is, is a sort of head-scratching case, very complex, I decided to tackle it from a narrative standpoint. So I was inspired by her personal story, which touches upon also my personal story as a vulnerable person uh, whose body does not correspond to the image that sometimes we have of, you know, gays with like super white teeth, muscle and, and everything in order, you know. And so I felt for her. And I think feeling, you know, when you do research, you do better research if you feel for the for the topic, if you really uh, feel that you are part and you like, contribute. You know, when we put our personal feelings on the table, I think it's an important move that creates trust and also help people understand the genuinity of our uh, other things we do and our research in particular. As Matteo told us a little bit before, he has developed a form of dialectic between his research and his teachings to advance the cause of diversity and inclusion, also well known under the acronym DNI. He now explains, more specifically, how he designed his first courses on DNI and the key role of students' feedback and input in this process. Hello, hello. So it's uh, 14:42. Uh, we can, I think, we can start. Thanks very much for being here. So the the objective today is to start with the legal part of this slide course. We uh, have an objective here. Today to have some fun. I started teaching at the so MBA, Diversity and Inclusion. It was called at the time. Indeed, it was called Diversity and Inclusion Strategy because I thought it was sexy to have strategy in the name because like when students see strategy, they think about, oh my God, this is going to be super cool. And the course was not as successful as expected. Uh, because I had, there was too much law. One of the critics that students made, it was too much law. Although I really tried, I make, made a lot of efforts to keep the law on a, on a margin of, of the course, that still came up from time to time as, you know, it was my mind, my, my lawyering mindset. So I decided to do what usually scholars do when they have to teach new subjects, they start studying. So I bought books, uh, I printed out articles, and I spent my summer and my winter, uh, that was a few years ago, studying. Uh, you know, I went to Yale also back uh, to, to, to find, you know, new literature and to work on that. And uh, when I came back, uh, I had, and um, I, I think that was another change in my life, I understood that the power of networking. Because I uh, met very, um, how can I say, uh, promising leaders of tomorrow in some students, especially in the MBA, and they helped me a lot. 
finding my way to uh, at the end to being a DEI expert. In particular, Louis Dumier, which I want to mention because he's a friend now and he was an MBA student at the time. And it was 2016, and we met uh, thanks to to the the corporate partnership office. And it was a time where you know the Supreme Court. It was one year after the Supreme Court had um, of the U.S. had introduced and recognized same-sex marriage. So it was a very prolific time for debating on LGBT rights. So Louis came to me and said, "Why don't we organize a bunch of conferences on diversity?" And that I thought it was a great idea because I can use what I learned from these conferences to enhance my research and teaching at the same time. It was a great um, opportunity to see how student, what students liked and how students acted upon certain subjects. We met Louis Dumier, the former MBA student Matteo had just mentioned. Louis has indeed played a major role in pushing the subject of diversity and inclusion on HEC campus and even further beyond. He founded the first LGBT plus club at HEC Paris with the aim to have impact on business. And with Matteo, they both launched Diversity Talks in 2016, a series of conferences on business approach to diversity and inclusion. To the why I created the club, the short answer is because it did not exist. So the question then, I guess, becomes why does an MBA or actually any program need an LGBTQ club, right? So the the short answer to that one is, well, in my view, any student program needs one. The the campus back then was definitely not a homophobic place, but it certainly was not a place of visible LGBTQ diversity either. So La Grande École, which I I would refer to as the undergraduate program, uh, had its own LGBTQ club for almost 20 years, I think. Uh, But their curriculum program made it very hard for them to bring stability into the club's presence on campus. So when I showed up in 2016, I quickly concluded that the the LGBTQ topic was more of a hidden topic rather than what I consider it should ultimately be, which is a non-topic. And that nuance is quite important to me because to some extent, it's the same as what we heard in the US with the don't ask, don't tell that needed to move into a model where it's just accepted as a fact. And it's all theory here, of course, because indeed in a perfect world, no one would care what's in your pants or what's your romantic life look like. But again, we're far from being there, uh, whether as a society and, or as HEC. So I thought that creating the graduate club, the, the graduate club of people who share this view whether LGBTQ themselves or not, would be the right first step into normalizing the topic. The idea with the the business orientation, the purpose of business, uh, was meant to to be more of a, to have the core of our events and discussion topics towards professional as opposed to social. The the goal behind that was basically twofold. The the first one is uh, having impact through the common interest with the larger students community. By that, I mean the LGBTQ social gatherings would most likely appeal to an LGBTQ crowd, right? So while I assume that most students on a business school would be more interested in business topics, even with a dash of LGBTQ in them. 
So the second goal behind that was to create and basically spread awareness to make LGBTQ presence more normal, even beyond HEC. Because when you look at a campus, you basically have a pool of ambassadors. And the more educated these ambassadors are on diversity topics, the larger their impact on tomorrow's business. Ultimately, the, the business aspect of the club was really to touch and get in touch with a broader audience. It's fun, I, I just mentioned, mentioned the word, but I think that I see myself more as an ambassador than an activist. Uh, I am the very impatient profile. So if I wanted to be an activist, I would need to, to see myself spend a significantly higher proportion of my time uh, trying to move the needle on the field every day, as opposed to integrating it in my professional and personal life. Instead, I, I decided to, to focus my time on normalization, and that's basically our long-run ambition. So taking from there, the greatest impact I could have, given my situation again, and the pathway that I have is to try and basically engrave structural habits in my day-to-day -day life rather than aim for some, you know, big, loud momentum. To me, DNI is basically the guardian of the very basic but complex equation of one human being equals one human being. So, so to your question of what's at stake, it's basically the balance of that equation, which basically gives DNI the, the challenge to find out how to factor in all variables that can disturb the balance of the equation. And that means tangible variables such as, you know, uh, a visible handicap or intangible ones such as discrimination, discrimination against communities, discrimination against gender. And this is really this balance that is the, the, at stake with DNI. Matteo told us how his students helped him become a DNI expert. As you can understand, he enriches himself as an educator and a researcher through contact with others. This is a day-to-day -day experience, he says. I really feel that even more than contributing, my mission is to learn. I always learn from my students when I teach. I always learn from my colleagues when I speak with them. And it's a continuous and constant and day-to-day -day experience for me to continue uh, learning uh, from everyone I interact with. And so I learned, for example, that uh, you shouldn't teach law when you teach diversity and inclusiveness because law is just one minimum component of the DNI dynamics, that um, DNI management is not limited to the workplace, that it's in society. And students, of course, are interested in the workplace because that's where they will be in one year, in two years. But, but they are really interested in knowing how society could be more inclusive, not just the workplace. HEC is a great platform for inclusiveness because we have more than 100 nas different nationalities on campus. And I think the way they interact or they don't interact, you know, it depends. The way they, they um, tackle these topics of uh, diversity and inclusiveness um, is a great learning experience for me, at least, and for us, to, to understand how we can improve things in society. This is a sort of microcosmos, micro-galaxy, micro-universe, if you wish, where we can make experiments and test 
how students behave and, and do things um, uh, coming from very different cultural background. This is also a challenge, but it's also a great opportunity for learning. You know, there is this great example currently in the U.S. where of uh, uh, gender pronouns, you know, that sometimes you see on LinkedIn name and then him, he, or like he, him, or like she, her, or them, they, you know, that's when we decide how we want to be addressed. And uh, there was this professor in this college who decided that he would have called this student with the gender that she appeared to be and not the gender she decided to be. And so she wanted to be addressed as a woman and he continued addressing her as a man. And there was a court case. And in the US, of course, we have these very stretched uh, very expansive freedom of ex notion of freedom of expression. So it was uh, it was labeled as freedom of expression. My point is that what's the learning that you give to your students by addressing them with the pronoun they don't want to be addressed with? What are you teaching them? You're teaching them that they are wrong, that they should behave in a different way, and I don't think this is good for anyone. And uh, the but. But still, the case is very important because it's a great, it gives the great chance to reflect upon current affairs in the world. Gender is just one example. We have neurodiversity, we have autism, we have Asperger's, which is just a marginalized part of the experience with the diversity. Um, we are now having more and more studies on that topic, and I want our students to, to know that there are different types of diversities exist. So I, I think that the better way is not to talk about diversity and inclusiveness, but diversities and inclusiveness, because everyone is diverse their own way. I do not uh, want to be addressed as a woman. I want to people see me as a professional due to my uh, working experience, to my education. That's why I would rather prefer uh, the usage of uh, these pronouns when um, people are talking to me. Of course, it's, um, I, I guess, more or less evident from my first and last names that uh, I am a, wo a woman. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I don't want to be addressed in such a way. Anna Liamina is one of Matteo's students in the HEC Paris MBA programme and a former president of the LGBT plus club. Probably uh, that, yes, would uh, be valuable to add that uh, I also come uh, from Russia. I'm Russian. Yes, probably one of the uh, reasons why I uh, decided to uh, take up uh, uh, this role is um, I really wanted it uh, to do due to my uh, cultural background. Uh, where I come from, uh, being a part of the LGBT uh, plus um, uh, community is... Um, persecuted and uh, against the law and uh, people who identify themselves uh, such as uh, unsafe. First of all, you, you talk, you organize events, uh, you, you make yourself visible, uh, you uh, stipulate that, yes, the community is facing these and that problems. You make uh, social events in order to attract bigger audience to talk about the problems, the dangerous issues that LGBTQ people are facing. 
uh, normally outside campus, like yes, on campus, it, it is uh, everyone is uh, trying to be supportive of each other, but straight people, most of the cases, do not realize uh, the the uh, problems that uh, LGBTQ people are facing. Not being silent, uh, asking questions, raising the questions, uh, raising up your voice, and uh, at the very least. Uh, This is the minimum that uh, everyone should be doing. After her very grave statements regarding the conditions of LGBT people in Russia, we asked Anna what changes she aspires to bring back to her home country. I would try to talk about my experience, the experience of uh, other people, what uh, we we faced, uh, what we went through, and to try to show as much example as I can that... uh, um, People with different backgrounds and uh, people who are just different uh, actually contribute more to the to the development of um, communities, society, and businesses. Among the podcasts that had inspired us, there is one that I would like to mention here. Seen on Radio, hosted by John Bevan. Its season three was released in 2018, long before the Me Too movement. It was entitled, Men, a journey into the whole gender thing, especially sexism, misogyny and patriarchy, says John Bevan in the trailer. Back to Matteo and back in 2021. Are we still in a men's world? Yes, Simone de Beauvoir wrote in 1949 that uh, we are not born women, but we are made. Um, And, you know, 1949, 2021, like it seems like ages. In fact, it's ages. And uh, why are we still contending uh, that there are different truths compared to this one? Uh, why are we still uh, contesting these ideas where women's bodies should be free uh, from constraints, uh, especially when uh, political decisions that are taken about women's body are taken by men? I was um, following the elections in Italy where the left wing won practically everywhere, uh, and uh, the, you know the populist right uh, just uh, collapsed. Apparently, there was local elections, and one of the the debate that uh, came out of this election was where are women, because there were female candidates, but when they voted after the election, when there was the the ballot, the second ballot, uh, they disappeared. Basically, it was just men against men. And uh, one reflection was, how can we guarantee that women are present everywhere, especially when where important decisions are taken? And I think that there was the, the research progressed a lot on gender, the so-called gender studies, even if uh, today the you know conservatives and far-right politicians take gender studies, they mock of these gender studies, and I think they are uh, basically BS, bullshit, and they don't, uh, they don't want to, to hear about that, right? So we have this constant return 
of topics that should have been decided once for all 50 years ago, like abortion rights, sexual harassment. There is always one topic which is control of the bodies, and one of the body of research that they want to develop in the future is the relationship between bodies and spaces. We have women in the boardroom, and are these women out of place in a boardroom? I don't think so. Even if uh, in finance, for example, you have an underrepresentation of women in leadership position in banking and finance and hedge funds. Why that? Because women are not good in math, so they cannot make the calculations that are necessary to calculate the profits for a hedge fund's client. Uh, that's because women um, need to take care of their kids and therefore cannot dedicate themselves completely to the career as men do. Uh, these are topics that are still discussed when, in fact, they should have been settled 50 years ago. And I think this is also the way our society works, right? Leaders, national leaders, tend to hide real problems by taking back old problems as if they weren't settled yet. One example is Hungary. They, in Hungary, they made a law uh, two or three years ago. They changed the constitution to say that marriage is only between a man and a woman. And second, they said that people cannot change their gender and they must be with the gender for all their life, with the gender they've been assigned at birth. Uh, while we all know that when you look at a baby, a newborn baby, you identify his sex or her sex. Well, there already we have already determined the gender. You see, their sex is better. We determine their sex, but we don't know anything about their gender. Uh, and so contesting these gender studies that basically say that uh, gender is socially determined and not biologically determined, even if I also uh, criticize the idea that biology, I mean, the way we look at biology also matters, right? Uh, it's not just biology fixed once for all. So the way we look at gender uh, as biologically determined is absolutely wrong, uh, but still politicians look at that, especially in this case of Hungary, because, because declaring war on transgender population is to create an enemy, and politicians need enemies to continue cultivating their ambitions of power and success, and Of course, crushing a minority is the easiest thing you can do. And the entire, you know, also there was this law last year in Hungary uh, about uh, gay people not to be, uh, any anything relating to homosexuality cannot be showed in advertisements and anywhere where kids are present. And this is a, a joke, really, if it wasn't a real law, it would have been a joke because... It's as if we become gay when we turn 18. But it's a lie because always teenagers know very well whether they're straight or gay or trans and, and we are 
harming them by depriving them of images they can relate to. I remember was when I was in high school, I was in a Catholic high school, and I looked around, and there was no one like me. And there was no role model, there were no singers coming out, there were just singers singing about stories of two guys, but not in a very expressive way, because then it would have been ruined their career. Uh, so coming back to these examples, we have a bunch of research, a solid research, demonstrating that gender uh, is not biologically determined. And then we have politicians that mock of it and think this is not serious. And they take biology because biology is easier to comprehend by, you know, the lay person, right? You say, okay, men, women, why should we have a third gender? My God, what is that? This is uh, outrageous. And so simple messages that destroy an entire works of research just because these people want to fulfill their uh, political ambitions and ambitions of power. And uh, uh, the way it's done is outrageous, and uh, it shouldn't happen, of course. But coming back to the relationship with you know, women's body, uh, bodies and spaces, I think what's interesting, we see this dynamic recently with the LGBT free zone that have been declared in Poland, and uh, in, um, in some of the Eastern European countries. Uh, and with the, with the response that the European Parliament gave to it to say, we are an LGBT freedom zone. So there is also this opposition between freedom and populist politics. And now some Polish towns are, um, are coming back uh, to their steps and, and they are accepting funds because basically the European Commission used their fundings to say, if you are an LGBT-free zone, we are not going to give you funds. And so because they, these, these cities need funds, uh, they say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to be an LGBT-inclusive area. Um, so we see these dynamics, right? How can we react to these perverse political moves. First, by, by debunking the myth that these are absolute truths. And, and we do that by, by studying it, by creating, you know, uh, by collecting data, by doing some empirical research uh, to find how people behave, how uh, inclusive is probably better reached in very local um, environments than in absolute, in, you know, in national environments as well, and, uh, and so on. So the importance of research is crucial to find weaknesses in this rhetorical discourse of populism, which is very harmful. We wanted to ask Matteo about the last topic that we hadn't yet discussed, and one which is also at the core of his work and concerns, diversity in business. What does it mean for a company to be inclusive? Why should they be? I think it's a, it's a double side process. So uh, at some point, business uh, considered that diversity was uh, a value to promote and inclusiveness was uh, a mission to promote more diversity. So it's, it's like a circle uh, that if you have a lot of diversity among your employees, then you promote inclusiveness to make sure that this diversity does not disrupt in conflicts and you, know, you don't lose talent. Uh, but at the same time, 
by enhancing inclusiveness, you also attract more diverse talents. So your pool of diverse employees is larger, gets larger and larger. And so I think the good thing for business is that they have understood that being inclusive is not just a matter of law and compliance, but it, it's a good management technique to make sure that your, um, your firm is profitable. Now, let me be very clear. I don't like the argument of profitability because it seems that we are treated as machines and once the profit goes down then the, the argument for the case for diversity and inclusiveness is, is gone, right? So I think that because we spend uh, more than half, maybe two-thirds of our life at work, um, we need to be inclusive at work because we need uh, workers to feel that they belong even when they go to work. And that makes their lives better, uh, there are a lot of studies showing that the well-being of employees uh, is better in places where they feel included, where there are LGBT uh, employees groups, uh, where managers are transparent and there is transparency of decisions. And there is really um, very interesting research on that topic. Um, another thing that we can say is that the way business changes, changes society. Our societies are diverse by definition. Diversity can be disrupted by, for example, the populist discourse of us against them. And therefore, inclusiveness can help diversity to flourish and to represent a great opportunity of learning and of change of people. You were listening to Tomorrow is Our Business, a monthly podcast brought to you by HEC Paris. Rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. If you want to know more about how we aim to have impact on business and on society, join us on our website, hec.edu, or on our social media at HEC Paris. You can also gain insights from our research by listening to Knowledge at HEC podcast. Knowledge at HEC podcast.